Good morning, Grace. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 16. As, uh, as Walt mentioned, we're starting a new series today where over the course of the next 12 weeks, we are going to be spending some time in the Psalms and looking at 12 Psalms. And we're calling this series In the Shadow of the Rock. And uh, I am excited. I think this is a good series for us. Uh, We actually did something very similar about three years ago where we studied uh, the book of Psalms over the course of the summer. And I I think that going to the Psalms is something we can't do often, uh, often enough. It's good for us to go and allow the Lord to minister to us from the Psalms. They're so devotional in nature. They have a way of affecting us deep in our hearts and causing us to have affections changed and eyes fixed on the Lord in a very special and unique way. So I think it's good for us to go here and spend extended time in the Psalms. As we've talked and considered what to do this summer, I think we we really think it's important for us to, to dig down deep into the Psalms uh, the Psalms have a, a, a really special way of causing us to live God-centered and Godward lives. I want to share three ways that the Psalms actually help us to do that. First, the Psalms show us how to deal with emotions. The Psalms show us how to deal with emotions. We tend to fall into one or two categories where emotions are concerned. We tend to be a people who stuff or suppress emotions. We, like Elsa from Frozen, conceal, don't feel. Although that may not be a particularly helpful uh, image there because the people who tend to conceal and don't feel their emotions probably don't watch Frozen. But, (laughs) But there's another group of people who they don't conceal and not feel. No, they exalt their emotions. And they allow their emotions to be the rule by which they live out their life. Their emotions become a sort of idol. And if you infringe upon their emotions, then you get in trouble. You cannot speak into these things because emotions are so highly exalted and valued. The Psalms give us an incredible license to feel and to feel deeply. To have all manner of emotions, to feel deep sorrow, deep joy, and so much in between. But the Psalms do not give us license to either suppress or exalt our emotions. They do what Tim Keller says, they offer us a gospel third way of thinking about emotions. We don't exalt We don't suppress. No, we take our very real emotions, emotions that are natural to the human existence, and we take those to God. And we express those to God, and we wrestle with our emotions with God. And so the the, the Psalms help us in this. They serve us in this. They show us how to do this. They help us to know how to do 
uh, know what to do with our emotions. The Psalms also teach us how to pray, and I think this flows out of uh, the point about emotions. What do we do when we go to God and we, we process our emotions with God? We pray. We pray to God. The Psalms offer us 150 examples of real life people who experience the full gamut of emotions going to God in prayer. The psalmists go to God with gratitude, with confusion, with sorrow, with anticipation of faithful action, with petition, and with so much more. And in all of this, we are instructed. And in all of this, we have a model for what it looks like to go to God in prayer. John Calvin says that the Holy Spirit composed the psalms in such a way to give the church a common form of prayer. These are given to us so that we would know how to go to God in prayer. And this truth, I believe, makes the Psalms a wonderful devotional companion. Once again, the Psalms have a unique way of stirring up our affections for God, of getting our heart in tune to what the Lord is doing. It's for this reason I really Uh, I I love devotional books. I think some are fantastic. Nevertheless, uh, it does confound me at times how quick we are to run to devotional books when we have the Psalms. So many of us would rather go to devotionals rather than the Psalms, which God gave to his church to build us up, to edify us, to equip us, and to cause us to live more devotional lives. And, And so on that note, I would like to commend two resources to you as we dive into this summer series. The first, Crossway, the publisher, just recently uh, uh, put out a ESV devotional psalter. And so there's the Psalms and a really cool looking package. And then there's some devotions uh, uh, that are also contained within they will help you to pray and to think well about the Psalms. The second is by Tim Keller. It's called Songs of Jesus. He takes Psalms or sections of Psalms and then basically writes out prayers. And both of these, I think, will help us, uh, help us to pray well, uh, to consider how to go to the Lord regularly, consistently, in an informed way to the Lord. Finally, the Psalms orient us to what is truly important. They orient us what is truly important. The Psalms wonderfully explore the depth of human emotion, but ultimately they come back to the God who is worthy of praise. I think this is so clearly seen in the end of the Psalms. In Psalms 146 through 150, where do the Psalms go? Where do they end? Where do they culminate? In these five final Psalms. And each of these final Psalms begins with praise to the Lord. They begin with hallelujah, praise Yahweh. This is what it's all about. Martin Luther called the Psalms a mini Bible. There is a sense in which when we read the Psalms, we read the full counsel of God. We read about the great God of glory who is worthy of all worship. We read about salvation and we anticipate the salvation that is to come in Christ We see God's faithfulness on grand display. We see sound doctrine taught and applied and responded to. And on it goes. But in all of this, we see that God is all in all. And so we go to the Psalms, or as we go to the Psalms, we will be reoriented to what is mainly important, namely God. 
And so once again, we think this is an important series. It's an important series because we are a people who need to make sense of our emotions. So many of us are either emotionally stunted or emotional, emotionally sloppy. And, and we need to be a people who submit our emotions to God and wrestle rightly with God. This is an important series because we are people who are prone to rely upon our own gifting skills and resources in order to do the work of God in this earth. No, we need to be a humble and dependent people who go to the Lord in prayer that we might worship the Lord, that we might do good for our community, for the nations, that we might build this church up and that we might present one another mature in Christ. We need God in order to fuel this mission. And finally, this is important because we are constantly tempted by our flesh, the world, and Satan himself. We're tempted by these things to elevate anything and everything above God. Our hearts are idle factories, but here we have an opportunity to be reoriented and to live to God. And so... Once again, I'm excited that we are studying the book of Psalms, and I encourage you to dig in uh, with us. And that brings us to today, Psalm 16. Uh, we're going to be in this wonderful psalm today. This is a psalm that's usually considered a psalm of trust. In this psalm, David displays a wonderful, incredible trust in the goodness of God. And this is significant for us today, I believe, because we are a people who are so prone to distrust the goodness of God. We're so quick to laud the goodness of all sorts of things that aren't good. Uh, food, uh, uh, activities, exercises, and on, and on and on the list goes. We have no problem calling these things good uh, in a non-nuanced, uh, non-careful sort of way. But the second we have discomfort, the second that, that things get confusing, we begin to cast distrust upon the Lord and doubt his goodness. Well, Psalm 16 helps us to think about this. This psalm speaks into that, that, uh, uh, that inclination of the heart that we so often have. And so uh, let us let the psalm speak this morning. We're going to see three things from Psalm 16. First, we are going to be instructed to pray. We are to pray the goodness of God. In the psalm, we're going to see David as one who is relentlessly committed to the goodness of God, and we'll see the consequences of his commitment to God or to good, the goodness of God in prayer. Second, we'll see that God himself is our good. God is our good. Where do we experience God? Or good? Is it in the things that we receive? Is it in our accomplishments? Is it in our safety? No. The radical truth is that God himself is the true gift of goodness to us. And finally, we'll see that the rock-solid assurance of God's goodness is the person and work of Jesus. Like so many Psalms, Psalm 16 is going to point us explicitly to Christ. So that's where we're going to be this morning. Let's pray and we will read and dive in. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Psalms. We thank you that you are the sort of God who speaks, that cares that our, uh, our heads and our hearts would be engaged 
and that we as whole people would worship you entirely uh, to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray that you would do good work in us today. Uh, Let us now sit under your word to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they're excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offering of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Once again, the first thing we would like to see in Psalm 16 is that we are to pray the goodness of God. Notice verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Preserve me. Where do we begin? With a plea from David to God. Preserve me. And this leads to a really natural question. Preserve me from what? What's the context? What's the conflict of Psalm 16? The Psalms don't typically lay out the context for us in crystal clarity. Often we're left wanting as to what's going on in the Psalms. What the Psalms do is they offer us insight. They offer us a, a, a lens into how the psalmist respond in light of whatever the conflict actually is. That's partially true here in Psalm 16. If we jump forward to verses 9 and 10, we're going to see something interesting. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So we don't have the entire context, but we do have a clue as to what's going on in these verses. Verse 10 says that David is concerned that he will be abandoned to Sheol, that he will see the corruption of the grave. On the surface, this might seem like David is merely uh, concerned that he is going to die. I think it's more likely that David is concerned with the faithfulness of God, though. He's concerned with the faithfulness of God. God had made certain promises to David, promises that led David to to believe that, that an early death uh, would not be his. That would not accord with God's faithful and true word. And so, so whatever the situation he finds himself in, th- this situation calls, therefore, into question the promise of God. And so this is an attack, this is an affront on the very goodness of God. And so in light of this, David prays, preserve me. Preserve me, O God. Now notice verse 9 again. 
Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Catch this. In verse 1, we see David calling out to God to preserve him. Things seem to be up in the air. There's confusion, there's doubt, there's chaos. Preserve me. But by verses 9 and 10, David is crying out in exultation that he is happy and he is secure in the strong arms of God. What happened in those eight verses to get David to that place? He prayed. He prayed. He prayed, and in particular, he prayed the goodness of God back to God. He recounted God's goodness and the ways he had acted uh, according to his goodness to David. He took his confusion, his fear, and his very real emotion, and he let these things drive him to his knees in prayer where he prayed God's glorious character. Verse 1, for in you I take refuge. God is and has been a refuge for David He's a very present help in time of need. He is a safe place, the place where he is covered and loved. Verse two, uh, I say to the Lord, God was David's Lord. He was his wise master, his powerful God and ally. He is the God who goes before him, who fights for him and has his best interest at heart at all times. Verse two also, I have no good apart from you. One pastor commented on this verse and said that that God was David's supreme treasure. He was his supreme treasure. He was his life. He was his hope. There were all sorts of things in this life that are good, that are worth desiring. But for David, God was his treasure. We could go on and on. Here we're seeing David say, God, I I don't know what's going on. This is confusing. This doesn't seem to accord with your character. I don't know how to make sense of this. But I know you're good. I've seen your goodness throughout the course of my life. I know you're faithful. I know you're gracious. I don't know what's going on, but I know you're good. I know you're good. So I'm going to hold on to your goodness, oh God. And as David prays this, as he pours himself out to the Lord in this sort of exultation, praying the goodness of God, we see something happening in David's heart. It begins to change. It goes from a place of petition to a place of confidence. He moves from preserve me, O God, to God, you will preserve me. Hallelujah. This is so instructive for us. It's so instructive for us. We are like David in that we experience all sorts of trials in this life. Trials that will no doubt cause us to question the goodness of God. No doubt many of you can just look at your home life, look at your work life, look at your financial status and and say, yes, I, I have questioned the goodness of God. How does Psalm 16 instruct us? It tells us to go and process these emotions that we feel. Process them in prayer. Go to God, ever mindful of his goodness. Ever mindful of his grace, of his faithfulness. And as we do this, our perspective will begin to change. I think this is what we see uh, in the Lord's Prayer even. 
when the disciples wanted to know how to pray, Jesus instructed them with the Lord's Prayer. And where does he begin? With our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Why begin here? Because this instructs and informs every other aspect of the Lord's Prayer. Why can we pray for our daily bread in the Lord's Prayer? Well, it's because we have a loving Father who cares for us and desires to meet our daily needs. That's the only reason we could be so bold to ask for our daily needs to be met if only we had a God who cares for us and relates to us as Father. There is no other uh, rationale for us to be able to pray that. Why can we pray that the Lord's will will be done? Because we look to the God who is in the heavens and has perfect perspective. And he alone knows what's good for his children. And so we can say, yes, Lord, your will and not mine be done because you know better than me. Psalm 16 and the Lord's Prayer teach the same thing. You can only stare at the goodness of God for so long. You can only stare at the character of God for so long before your perspective begins to change, before you see your situation in light of his goodness, in light of his character. So what I think we're seeing happening here in Psalm 16 is David goes to the Lord in prayer and he prays these things. He begins to believe God's goodness in his life. And so what do we do? We pray. We pray boldly, honestly. We depend on the Lord in prayer. We pray the goodness of God. We be relentlessly committed to the goodness of God and we let that drive us to prayer. We use the Psalms as a guide And as we do, gloriously, our hearts change. In Psalm 16, we see David be committed to the goodness of God. And thus, we are encouraged to be committed to the goodness of God. But how does God extend his goodness? It's a very important question. One that we must get right because the consequences of getting this wrong are significant. Second thing we want to see from Psalm 16 is that God is our good. God is our good. Verses five and six. The Lord, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. In these verses, we see the central image or metaphor being used in Psalm 16. We see words like portion and cup and lot and lines and inheritance. And all of these images have the distribution of land in mind. I I believe uh, what we're seeing here is actually uh, a pretty big allusion to number, the book of numbers. What's going on with these images, particularly the image of portion? Well, in the book of Numbers, we see God portion off territory or land to the different tribes of Israel. Each tribe was, getting a, was given a certain amount of land, a certain amount of stuff, and, and this was really great and a huge uh, thing to happen in the history of Israel. Judah was given La Mirada, Reuben was given La Habra, Simeon was given Buena Park, Dan was given Fullerton. You you get the idea of what's happening here. It was an epic fulfillment of the promises of God where God promised this to Abraham that his seed would inherit the land. 
And it's coming true. This is beautiful. The tribes receive their inheritance. But then we get this really interesting tidbit about the priestly tribe of Levi. Levi would receive no portion. The other tribes had huge, huge swaths of land and stuff, but for Levi, no portion. Numbers 18.20, the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Raylan and I are in a stage of life right now where we both deeply desire to own a home. And so we're, we're in this stage where that desire will drive us to drive around neighborhoods and look at houses and allow our, our hearts to long a little bit. And just imagine what it would be like to have a house that we can call our own. And imagine what all comes with that, you know, freedom, space, uh, so, so much. And, and we really desire that. That's not where we are right now. Uh, hopefully, Lord willing, at some point in the more near future than, than distant future. But, but that's not where we are at this particular moment. And these allotments given to Israel, the majority of Israel received this incredible thing that they had longed for. They got their space. They got their freedom. They received their inheritance. In other words, they got their house and all that comes along with it. But the tribe of Levi just got God as an inheritance. And so while the rest of Israel gets to roam around their land and have fun and continue as the people of God, Levi tends to the house of God and eats other people's food. I vividly remember reading this in college and thinking, Levi got gypped. Levi got gypped. This is not fair. Everybody else got everything that they wanted. They got all the stuff. Levi didn't get any of that. The lines did not fall in pleasant places for Levi. Their possessions are not what everyone else received. This is not a good inheritance. Well, in this psalm, David flips this line of thinking on its head. It's all wrong. It's backwards. To receive only God as an inheritance is to receive the best inheritance, is to receive a beautiful inheritance. God is enough. While the Israelites received temporary comforts and supplies from the land, the Levites received everything they needed from God himself. And David had eyes to see that here. And so David, if everything was out on a table and he had his choice, God is his choice portion. God is his chosen lot. All this other stuff can fall by the wayside as long as he gets God. Last Sunday, uh, Caleb Grossman, uh, who works in the youth group with me, he and I were uh, able to go to a Dodger game up in L.A. Uh, I was gifted tickets to this game, and, and it was incredible. I, uh, these tickets were by far the best tickets I've, I've ever had to a sporting event. We were right behind home plate, uh, right beside the field, and it was just incredible. 
And at one point I looked up and looked over and probably where Randy's sitting was Clayton Kershaw. If you don't know who Clayton Kershaw is, he's one of the best players in baseball. He's probably the best pitcher in baseball, or at least arguably, um, uh, and, and, and a big deal. And it was strange seeing him standing over there. I, I had two thoughts kind of simultaneously. The first was, wow, he's just a normal guy. Like he's a person. And, uh, and that was good for my heart to realize that, that, that these superstar athletes were just people. Um, but then simultaneously to that, I also had the thought of, he has a $300 million contract. He gets paid $35 million a year to throw a ball. <laughs> to throw a bunch of rubber bands and thread mixed together really hard. Isn't that amazing? Well, I thought that, and then as my idolatrous heart is prone to do, I continued to think about that. And then I continued to think, what if I had a $300 million contract? What if I made $35 million to do something that would be super fun and that I would do for free? Um, yeah, that, that took me down a strange road. But uh, in the midst of that, part of what I thought was, man, my life would be perfect. My life would be so much better. I would have all of these great things. I could buy my house and then a second one and a third one. Uh, I would have my family set up forever. Uh, I even thought uh, very Christian and spiritual things too. I would support missions and I would give a lot of that to the church and I would do all these good things. And, and I just thought how crazy that would be to be in that situation. Imagine you woke up tomorrow and somehow you had inherited $300 million or something crazy like that. Wouldn't that be incredible? Wouldn't that be incredible? Pay special attention here to the point of Psalm 16. Psalm 16 says that God who created money and gives it value, gives himself to you as an inheritance. He gives himself to you as an inheritance. While money might be a good inheritance, it might also be the worst inheritance. God is a truly beautiful inheritance. What is the good news of the gospel? What is the good news of the gospel? Is, it, is the gospel good news because of what you get in this life? Is the gospel good news because you don't go to hell is the gospel good news because once you get to heaven, you get to experience all the fun and the carefree bliss that comes along with heaven? What we're seeing here is that David saw the goodness of God, not primarily in stuff, but in God himself. The very best things that exist in this life are not in things, but in God. And Psalm 16 calls for us to have a shift in our thinking. We need a new lens through which to see the world. We tend to see things like good and beauty through the lens of a world that says stuff, possessions, accolades, success, money, security, health. These are the very best things that life has to offer. But what does the Bible teach? God alone is good. I'm burdened that we get this. We live in a world where the, the prosperity gospel reigns. 
And I'm concerned that, that we live in, in an insulated place where we think that the prosperity gospel cannot touch us. Prosperity gospel says that Christ died for you, that you would experience wealth and health and prosperity here today in this life. And we believe that. We buy into that, maybe not in super explicit ways, but it's all laced throughout our life. I believe so many aspects of that and I have to regularly die to it. But being a Christian doesn't mean that your life will be devoid of pain. It doesn't mean that your life is going to be easy. It doesn't mean that your kids are going to thrive and everything is going to be okay. 29 Coptic Christians learned this, experienced this this week. Kim Lee realized this this week. That's not the gospel. Please hear me. The good news of the gospel is not primarily that you have been saved from something, as good as that is, as great as that is, as grateful as we should be for what we've been saved from. The good news of the gospel is not even primarily what we will receive in heaven, the stuff of heaven. The good news of the gospel is that we get God. God is enough. God is the good news of the gospel. Cherish God. What is our gospel good? It's God himself. It's God. He is our beautiful inheritance. He is the good news. But Psalm 16 keeps going. And he reveals the evidence that this good is truly ours. Jesus is the sure mark of God's goodness. Verses 8 through 11. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What a beautiful collection of verses. These verses show an insane and awesome confidence in the goodness of God. In particular, they show David's trust in the fact that God will preserve him. There's one problem. They don't seem to be true of David. They don't seem to be true of David. Think about David's life. Did David die? Yes. Then how did his flesh dwell securely? Did David stay in the grave? Yes, his body did. Then how did he not see corruption? David said that he would not see the pit of death, yet David did see the pit of death. David said his body would not see decay, yet David's body rotted just like everybody else's. We seem to be seeing something off about these verses. These verses seem to only be partially true of David. In order to understand these verses, we have to appeal to the illumination of the New Testament. Turn with me to Acts 2. Acts 2, uh, starting in verse 29, Peter just recounted these very words of Psalm 16. And about them he says, Brothers, 
verse 29, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In these verses, we see Peter saying that when David said these things, he wasn't primarily speaking about himself. Rather, he was talking about what would become true in Christ. While David might have died and stayed in the grave, Jesus died and rose three days later. Jesus was not abandoned to the pit, and he did not see the decay of everlasting death. The solution to death, therefore, became gloriously clear when Jesus burst free from the grave. The grave could not hold him. Death had no right to Jesus. And so we see the perfect fulfillment and realization of Psalm 16, not in David, but in the true and better David, Jesus. And now, verses 8 through 11 of Psalm 16, these are literally true for David and for us who are in Christ. If we have believed in Jesus, the Bible tells us that Christ bled and died and rose again. And so any who believe in him, who believe in his name, will receive salvation to everlasting life. We will get God forever. We will get the very best good forever. And we will receive his blessings forever. There is coming a day where the saints of God will be raised imperishable. We will see Christ face to face and we will truly know how beautiful our inheritance is. As our time comes to a close, I want to draw your attention to the title of this series, In the Shadow of the Rock. If you notice the artwork behind there, that's actually a painting by Laura Rosencrantz, the incredibly talented Laura Rosencrantz. Uh, And the the setting there is the place where Jason and Melody Litzaw actually took their engagement pictures. And the actual picture uh, is hanging in the Litzaws' home. If you happen to know the Litzaws, or if you don't know the Litzaws, then you know that they have experienced um, significant trial and suffering in this past season of life. Over and over again, they've had ample opportunity to doubt the goodness of God. And no doubt, that's where many of you are here today. You might, like Mel, be experiencing physical ailments. Your your body might be warring against you. Things like cancer exist. Things like MS exist. Our hearts give out. You might be in a marriage that you just don't like.
kids might be walking away from the Lord. Discord in the family. No doubt, many of us have things going on in our life that might cause us to doubt the goodness of God. What is our hope? What is Jason and Mel's hope? Is it that things will just work out? That things are gonna get better? That would be great. And that's certainly something we should pray for. God is able to do so much more than we can ever imagine. And so we give ourselves to prayer, yes. But what is our true hope? It's not that things will work out in this life, no. Our hope is the rock. Our hope is Jesus. The sure mark of the goodness of God is not wealth, it's not health, it's not prosperity that we experience in this life, but Jesus Christ crucified and raised again to life three days later. So what do we do today? What does Psalm 16 bid us to? To hide in the shadow of the rock. We live in the shadow of the rock. We look to the rock as the sure promise of God's goodness for us today and forever. As one author says, for every look itself, we give 10 looks to Christ. We look to Christ, we look to Christ, and we hide in his shadow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for the rock. In, whom, in whose shadow we can hide. Father, would you work in us so that the cry of our heart is, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Father, I pray that our affections would be stoked and that you would work in us in such a way that we uh, are committed to your goodness, that we see your gospel good in our lives all the time in that we have been brought near to you, our glorious God. Would you overwhelm us with that fact and cause us to live in light of your glorious grace this week? Thank you for these people. Thank you for what you're doing in us as a church. Uh, Would you use us now to the praise of your glorious grace? In Jesus' name we pray.